So uh, a few years ago, there was a writer and computer programmer named Paul Ford, and he realized that his anxieties were absolutely destroying his life. He was losing sleep. He was doing really badly at work. He was having trouble with his self-confidence, and he was just realizing, man, this anxiety is getting the best of me. And so one day, he was going through his emails, and he had all kinds of spam, and he was just clicking delete over and over and getting rid of these spam emails. And he had the thought, man, if only I could delete my anxieties like spam. Because that's really what they are. They're just mental spam. What if I could just delete them? And so Paul Ford did what he did with every problem he had, which is create a website to solve his own problem. And so he created something called Anxiety Box with the slogan, stop making yourself anxious, that's our job. An Anxiety Box was basically a spam bot. For those of you who aren't familiar with what a spam bot is, it's a computer program that mimics human speech or human writing. So you give it parameters and it will create human sentences. And and sometimes they're pretty good at faking it. And so what he did is he made a form where you would enter your name and your email address and your top three or four greatest anxieties. An anxiety box would email you your own anxious thoughts throughout the day so that you could delete them. And And he realized, it's a great idea, right? And so he realized when he, re- he heard and read his own anxieties in this kind of like stilted, ridiculous-sounding spam bot voice, just how ridiculous his anxieties actually were, and they are absolutely hilarious. So I have some to share with you. He would get emails 10 to 12 times a day that said things like, people on Facebook look at your picture and think, strangely repulsive and whiny. <laughs> Delete. I don't agree with all the people who say you are weak-kneed and monstrous. People pretend to be nice to you, but they're thinking weird-faced. How many of you guys have, have felt that one? This is my personal favorite right here. The simple reason that you are not happy is that you are a liar and not funny. <laughs> and then this last one I, I included because I'm sure all of us can relate to this one. Your mom and dad would never say anything, but they so want to know why you choose to be like garbage. <laughs> so 10 or 12 times a day, Paul would get emails like that and he would just delete them. And so basically what he said is he said, hey, I gave my anxieties a voice and then I gave them my email address. And um, his idea was that if he was just able to delete them, they would go away. And the website took off in popularity, but here's the thing, it didn't actually work. Because if you go there today, you'll find that the website has been shut down because according to Paul, and this is a quote, it was making me anxious. (laughs) And that's true, I promise you I didn't make that up. I wanted to start with that story because anxiety, which is what today's passage is about, is is something that's kind of a universal experience. Different people experience it differently and experience it at different levels of intensity, but all of us know what it feels like to to worry about something or to feel anxious about something or to, to stress out about something. And so we're in the middle of our series that's on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been given, and today's passage is just an incredibly practical one where Jesus talks about the experience of anxiety and how to cope with it, how to deal with it, how to, how to in a godly, gospel-centered way, how to deal with the anxieties that you feel. So we're going to go through this passage verse by verse, and I really want you, as we go, to, to pay attention to the rhetoric. Jesus does some incredible things here rhetorically. Um, but before we even get into the content, there's a, an example in this passage of a really helpful and important Bible reading tip that all of us should be familiar with as we're reading our Bibles. And it's in this very first word in the sentence. Some of you are probably already familiar with this idea. But when you're reading the Bible and you see the word, therefore, you need to slow down. Some of you, you can finish the sentence with me if you already know this. Ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? 
Super cheesy, and it, but it totally works. What is the therefore, therefore? The, the English word therefore and the Greek word that it's translating, both of them are, it's a logical connective. It connects the thing you're about to say to the thing you just said. So if you're reading and you see a therefore, you need to slow down and ask yourself, do I understand what's going on? Am I caught up? Do I know what's been said so far? Because the next thing that I'm about to read is going to have a lot to do with what I just read. And so for us, with this passage, we need to remember what we heard last week, which is the passage that came right before this. Isaac talked about it. And it's the passage about money. For those of you who weren't here, by the way, I really recommend that you go back and listen to that sermon. I think it's incredibly important for our culture. And not only that, but it actually has a lot to say um, about this week's passage. And so this week's passage really comes to life. But what Jesus ended last week by saying was, you can only serve one master, God or money. You can't serve both. You guys remember that? It's a famous verse. And before that, he had just been talking about the, the transient nature of earthly wealth, the fact that we store up all of these earthly treasures, but they're not coming with us to God's eternal kingdom. Someday they're going to wear out, and you're not going to be able to keep them. So you can only serve one master, God, or money. And this week, we're talking about the danger of, of worrying about those things. Last week, we were kind of talking about the danger of, of storing them up. This week, we're talking about the danger of worrying about them, which is interesting because I think you don't have to have a lot of earthly treasures to worry about them, right? You can worry about treasure if you have a ton of it. You can worry about treasure if you don't have very much of it at all. So just to kind of put this verse in its proper context or this passage, I'm just, all I did was break out the therefore, but try to hear it like this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, your body, what you will put on. Does that make sense? You guys see the connection there? Since you can't serve God and money, don't be anxious about money stuff. That's what he's saying. We need to have that in our mind as we go on. And in this passage, you're going to see three different repetitions of therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. He says that three different times and gives three different reasons why. So, therefore I tell you, oops, going too far, sorry. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothing. The King James version of this verse is it's a really popular translation to memorize things in, and so a lot of people are familiar with this verse in the King James version, and it says, take no thought for what you will eat, drink, wear. Um, and, and I think that's a really misleading translation. So we, we need to take a minute to really understand what this verse, do not be anxious, is actually saying. Uh, the Greek word behind anxious is translated really accurately as anxious. It does not mean take no thought. It doesn't mean don't think about something. It means an internal disturbance, like a psychological disturbance that interrupts your life and makes you worried. If you want a, another example of this word being used in the New Testament, there's a story in Luke 10 of two sisters, Mary and Martha, who are both followers of Jesus. And as Jesus is teaching, the one sister, Mary, is sitting and listening to him. And the other sister, Martha, is rushing around trying to get a bunch of stuff done, and she's not listening to what Jesus has to say. And Jesus tells her, you are anxious about many things. Same word. So again, it's not. It's actually, in some ways, it's the opposite of take no thought. It's do not be anxious. Don't worry about these things. So we can think about this stuff, and I think we, we should think about this stuff, but what he's saying is don't 
worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. It's not about being careless. It's about being carefree in a sense. Do not be anxious. And I think what Jesus is trying to get at in light of what he just said about only being able to serve one master, God, or money is that your level of anxiety over money-related stuff, over provision, over your future is a barometer for which master you're really serving, God or money. Remember, you can only serve one master, God or money. So don't be anxious about money's stuff. If you choose God as your master, don't be anxious. And he'll, he'll make that even more clear as we go. He goes straight into like a, a nature illustration to really help us understand what he's getting at. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now this is a verse that's easy to misunderstand. Because it almost sounds like he's saying, be like the birds. They don't worry about this stuff, but that's not what he's saying. He's giving two examples, and it's not saying just fly around and don't worry about stuff like birds do. Um, Birds actually spend most of their time trying to get food, so it wouldn't be a great metaphor if that was what he was saying. But what he's saying is, look at how involved God is in his creation. And that's a really important reminder for us, especially in the modern world. Look at how involved he is. He feeds birds. He clothes the grass of the field. How much more is he going to feed and clothe you? See, we've, uh, this is about cosmology, basically, which is just your view of how the universe works. And most Christians think theistically, we think there is a God. Intellectually, we believe that there is a God who is involved in creation. But we live and act like we're deists. Um, and for those of you not familiar with deism, deism is a, it's basically a theology. It's often called the, the clockmaker God belief where God creates the whole world and gets all of his natural laws rolling, and then he kind of steps back and doesn't get involved with it anymore. Most of us wouldn't say we believe that, but it really has impacted the way we think about God. We think God is way up there in heaven, and every once in a while, if we're lucky, he'll reach down and do a miracle. But for the most part, he's kind of uninvolved. And Jesus is saying, that is not at all the way the universe works. He's saying God is actively involved in his creation. Hebrews 1 calls God the creator and sustainer. It's not just that he made the world. He isn't in a present tense way keeping it going. He's involved. And so Jesus is saying, look at how involved God is in the world. It makes me think of, there's a quote from a poet named Elizabeth Barrett Browning that says, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only those who see take off their sandals. The rest sit around it and eat blackberries. And so it's this idea that it's happening. The earth is full of the glory of God, but sometimes we don't see it. And the scary thing, and what this passage is really pointing out, is we don't live like we believe that. So Jesus is saying, you matter way more than birds matter. You matter way more than fields matter. And the God that created the world is actively involved in keeping it going. You don't want to be tricked by deism. You don't want to be tricked by naturalism. God is involved in the world. He says, oh, you of little faith. And and when I saw that phrase, the thing that jumps to my mind is, have we given God our faith for the most ultimate things in all of creation 
and then not given him our faith for little daily things? I mean, think about that. If you're a Christian, that means that you have given God your faith that he will save your soul, deliver you for all eternity, and remake this world and bring in new creation. He's going to do these ultimate, massive, metaphysical things. But we have, it's a paradox. We have a hard time with the idea of God providing our daily bread, even though we've put our faith in God to ultimately deliver all of creation. The flowers, the birds, they they provide a reminder for us of the fact that God is involved in creation. And when you see his hand in creation, it makes it easier to trust him. Jesus is saying, you've got a father. I mean, think about that. Your father. Brothers and sisters, your heavenly father. I mean, that is such an incredible verse to me. Your heavenly father feeds them. That's biblical cosmology. It's not simple theism. It's not just that there is a God. It's no, this is a God who is relational, who calls you his child, who is your father, your father. And he feeds even his birds. You think that kind of father is not going to feed you? So we get to the second repetition of therefore do not be anxious. Therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Jesus is using repetition to drive his argument down into a second layer. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Isaac has talked about this in past weeks, but when you see the word Gentiles in the New Testament, don't think ethnicity or race. Think people who don't know God. That's what that word was shorthand for. So Jesus is saying, people who don't know God seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but for you, you don't worry about them. And this is so practical. Again, it's, it's about the little faith thing. People who don't know God should worry about this stuff. They should. It makes sense to worry about this stuff if there's no God or if you don't know God. Why wouldn't you worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear? But children of God, people who recognize God as their father, they shouldn't worry about this stuff. So how do we react when when bad things happen, when we lose our job, when we lose a family member, when we're not sure how we're going to make our payments happen, when we're nervous about practical things that make sense to be nervous about? Do we act like pagans, like people who don't know God? I mean, think about the, the situation in our country right now. How does a Christian handle this stuff? when you know that your heavenly father, the God who who even feeds his own birds, is intimately involved in nature, is in charge of the world. People who serve the God of money as their master, they worry about this stuff, right? You can only serve one master, God or money. This is stuff that people who serve money have to worry about. But you, you're a child of the living God. You know your father and you know that he knows what you need. It's interesting, Jesus throws the solution to everything he's saying into kind of the middle of his argument because he still has one more, therefore do not be anxious to give us. But right here is the high point of the passage. And this is one of the most incredible verses in the entire New Testament. And it's one that gets used kind of separately from its context all the time. And that's actually okay to some degree. It's not one of those ones that's like super dangerous to take out of context, but hearing it in its context changes everything about it. It makes it so much more powerful. It colors it in. So before I even put the verse up, 
back, rewind back through all of that with me one more time. You can only serve one master, God or money. Therefore, do not be anxious about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. You hear how different that sounds when you hear it in its argument? I mean, that by itself is still an incredibly powerful and encouraging verse, but he is saying specifically, don't serve the God of money. Seek the kingdom. Seek his righteousness. That, uh, that phrase, seek, or that word, seek, in Greek, it's a present imperative. It's not just go seek it once. It's, it's a command to continually be seeking. It would be bad English, so they don't translate it that way, but it would be more accurate if it said, but be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the kingdom of God, the, the reign and rule of God on earth, and the righteousness of God, this behavior that matches the will of God. Be seeking these things. I think a lot of the time, Christians, um, and myself included, were very caught up in what unrighteous things we ought to be avoiding. And Jesus doesn't frame it that way in this verse. In this verse, he says, seek in a positive way his righteousness and his kingdom. Don't just avoid unrighteousness. Seek righteousness. You guys remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the Lord's Prayer. Do you guys remember the sequence of that verse? How many people, I'm not going to ask you to recite it so you can lie right now if you want. How many of you guys have, mem- have it memorized, the Lord's Prayer? It's awesome. It's an incredible thing to remember. Isaac gave us the challenge a few weeks ago of reciting that throughout the day. Um, but the sequence of the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What comes next? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Then give us today our daily bread. I think there's a really powerful truth there that's being reinforced right here. Seek first the kingdom, and the daily bread will be added to you. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Give us our daily bread. It's very significant. And again, uh, we, need to, we need to be careful with this verse, um, the la- especially the last part. It's, it's not a guarantee that you're always going to have enough based on your standards of what enough is. I know... Um, Christians all over the world who are, are praying desperately for their daily bread today. And they might get it and they might not. And these are people who are seeking his kingdom and his righteousness because sometimes in this, in this fallen world that we're working in, God calls people beyond what is normal to sacrifice even more than they should. People like Paul and the other apostles to, to give up daily bread for the sake of his kingdom. But the promise, the general statement here is you don't worry about that. God will worry about that. You, because you serve God, not money. You seek the kingdom. You seek his righteousness. And then we have the third, therefore. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's almost like the kind of wind down to the argument. Again, we have to resist the urge to use this verse out of context, too. Um, But he's just, it's almost like Jesus is saying, don't be anxious, but you, st- but you will be, right? Just don't overdo it. Um, we're we're going to talk more about that in a second. So what do we do with this passage? I just blasted through it because I want to talk about it more in general. I, there's a, um, a tendency among the, the kind of non-anxious to, to just say, hey, just trust God. Give it to God when you're anxious. But I think there's two ways that this verse needs to be applied, and they kind of apply differently to two different types of people. 
The first type of person is the, the truly anxious person. The person who does not have the ability to just turn off their anxiety. The person who isn't just worried about things that they should be worried about, but, but is constantly fighting anxiety all the time. Um, in a room this size, there's a lot of people like that. And I'm very familiar with this because I'm one of them myself. And uh, those of you who know me well already know that. Many of you probably don't know that because I don't necessarily project that. <laughs> but I am a, I'm a deeply anxious person. It's probably my greatest struggle, my greatest difficulty in life. Um, again, many people in this room I'm sure can relate to this, but nine out of 10 mornings I wake up and the first thing I'm greeted by is this kind of just knot of, of dread that's not even necessarily attached to anything going on in my life. Now throughout the day I'll find stuff to attach it to. That's the, that's the great skill of the anxious person, but it's there, you just live with it, it lives in you. Um, you know, I leave a conversation and kind of like immediately start thinking, man, how did I come across there? I totally made, made a fool of myself. That person thinks I'm dumb now. They, that person already completely forgot the whole conversation even happened. But I'm going to spin my wheels about it for another hour after. I see some of you guys nodding, my anxious people. Um, and so when you're like that, and I know this from experience, when you're like that and someone who's not like that or a preacher or somebody comes and says like, just give your anxieties to God. It's like, oh, thanks. That's so easy. I never knew that I could just decide to not feel these horrible feelings I've felt for my entire life. I'm going to choose tomorrow to not feel them anymore. Um, and I'm not saying that, that give your anxieties to God is bad advice. It actually, it's the advice I'm about to give. I'm just setting it up by saying I understand that it's not as easy as just flipping a switch and going, I will not feel anxious anymore. Instead, I will trust God. It's not that easy. So what do we do? What do anxiety box is a funny idea, Right? It's a lie. It doesn't work. You can't delete them. They're not just mental spam. And I think Paul adds a really helpful nuance to what Jesus is saying in, in Philippians for the person who, who has this ongoing ball of, of dread and worry that lives in them. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. So right there you're like, well, failed, failed verse number one. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's really similar to how Jesus ended his argument. Jesus goes, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious for tomorrow, just today's enough. It's almost like Paul, like Jesus, is saying, don't be anxious. But when you are, this is what you do. Make your requests known to God. Seek first the kingdom. Make your requests known to God. I, uh, the, the way I like to look at this, there's a simple application, which is kind of the natural one, which is when you're worried about something, choose to pray about it instead of obsess about it. And again, that's, uh, I know, that is way easier than it sounds. The second way that I apply this verse, or that I try to apply this verse, is I try to take my anxious thoughts, my anxious feelings, and, and I picture the promises of God and, and the person of Jesus and the, the truth of the gospel as a filter that I have to strain my anxieties through. That I'm going to take my anxiety and instead of just letting it roll around on the hamster wheel all day like it wants to, I'm going to take it out and I will force it through the filter of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. And so when I feel like I am not good enough, I take that anxiety and I force it to confront the truth that Jesus has decided that I am good enough to die for. 
force your anxieties to confront the truth of the gospel. They're not going to just magically go away. Now, the Holy Spirit can do that, and I think he does that for some people. But for for the vast majority of us, you're going to have to do that many times throughout the day. There's a a pastor who who talks about it like aspirin. He said, um, if you take aspirin and your headache goes away, and then five hours later you need to take another aspirin because your headache is back, it doesn't mean the aspirin didn't work. It just means you probably need to take another one today because it's a particularly bad headache. That's the same way this works. If it relieves you, you, you're going to have to do this several times throughout the day, but your anxieties are telling you lies about yourself. And it's not as easy as just saying, I don't believe those lies, I trust God instead. It doesn't work that way. You have to consciously force your anxieties to confront the truth of what God has said and what God has done. Some of us are going to deal with this for the rest of our lives. And and so for those of you who are like that, who are like me, really briefly here, um, if you are an anxious Christian in the room today, I just want to tell you really clearly you are okay today. Even if you don't feel okay. And the days where you don't feel okay, you're okay. And I'm not saying that on, on any kind of authority of myself. I'm saying that because if you are in Christ, your greatest problem has already been taken care of. God has decided through the grace and mercy of, of the work of Jesus, you are his son, you are his daughter. So the, the things you worry about, they might even happen, but you're okay in spite of that. So that's one type of person. Now, I know there's a huge chunk of people in the room who are just sitting there going like, okay, well, I don't worry, but I don't deal with that. I get worries, sure, but then I just, I handle the worry and it's fine. I think there is a whole nother way that this verse needs to be applied and it's to a completely different type of person. Um, Charles Spurgeon called the, uh, what you will eat, what you will drink, and what you will wear the world's trinity of cares. It's kind of an epic, creepy thing to call them. Um, In the context of this passage, remember, verse 24, you can only serve one God, one master, God or money. My anxious thoughts are one example of my distrust in God. But what about anxious action? What about anxious planning? What about anxious spending and anxious saving? And I'm not talking about the feeling. I'm talking about what you do and what it demonstrates about how much we trust God. So my, that feeling in my gut is an example of my, my distrust in God, but so is my filled refrigerator. And so could be my, my full retirement fund. Do we trust God? I think of this, uh, my wife, when I was talking to her about this sermon, she re- remembered a story from one of our friends in Tanzania, Sylvester. He's a Tanzanian man who came and visited America for the first time a few years ago. And then when we, last year when we were visiting them in Tanzania, he was talking to my wife about one of his experiences um, in America. And he talked about going to a, the house of some friends, some American friends. And he told Christina, he goes, they had two refrigerators. And they were both full. And he laughed. He thought it was funny. It was so, such a crazy idea to him. This is a guy whose wife goes to the market to buy today's food, if she has money to buy today's food. And so there, there's this sense in which we have this incredible luxury of trusting in ourselves, and it's causing us a lot of harm. It's, it's, I think it's the great trick of the false god money. I really do. I think that the false god money convinces us that we need more to be safe. 
And so we fill up our pockets and our garages and our accounts with all of this money and it actually makes our lives worse. It makes our lives more difficult. There's a first century rabbi named Rabbi Hillel the Elder and he said, the more property, the more worry. Another uh, translation of that would be the more property, the more care. And he's getting at the idea that the more you have, the more you have to think about it, right? The more you have, the more it dominates your attention and your energy. This is an idea, this is a 2,000-year-old quote, but it's an idea that has really stuck around in the minds of philosophers from all over the world. In fact, one of the greatest philosophers and poets of the late 20th century in the Western world said it this way, Mo money, mo problems. (laughs) You laugh. He's just quoting Hillel. None of you guys knew how much Biggie knew about first century rabbinic thought. Now, I don't think, I don't think Biggie meant it the way, I'm on a first name basis with him, uh, (laughs) the way that I mean it, but there is a profound wisdom here. The things that you need to have, like food and water and shelter, those things were designed to drive you to the provider. The things you need were meant to remind you that you need God. But when we take care of them ourselves and then we overtake care of them ourselves and we build up all of this stuff, it becomes a wall between us and God. Those needs were supposed to remind you that you need God because you do, no matter how much money you have, right? Those things were meant to remind you of your need for God and instead they make you forget your need for God. This is not a small thing. And so you might not even feel anxious, but man, the way you live your life shows that you are anxious about what you'll eat, drink, and wear. You know, um, in this sense, seek first the kingdom, seek first his righteousness, is actually Jesus' advice for how to get yourself out from under the thumb of the false master of money. Seek first his kingdom. Stop seeking this stuff, and it will lose its hold on you. I think that's what he's saying. And you get your needs taken care of as a bonus. There's another Spurgeon quote. Mind thou thy Lord's business, and he will see to thy business. Very fancy. Mind thou thy Lord's business, and he will see to thy business. This race that we have to get stuff, to get ourselves taken care of and comfortable and safe, it just has to stop, you guys. And it's it's. I know it's kind of like two weeks in a row that we're talking about something similar, but the, the point here is a positive one. It's that you don't need to worry about that stuff. You need to worry about the kingdom and the righteousness of the Father, and he will take care of the provision so that you don't have to seek the provision, right? Seek the Father, he'll take care of this, then you don't have to seek this. Again, if you trust in God, then you can work hard, to take care of your family, to take care of yourself. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but there's a difference between caring about this stuff and making it ultimate and making it the thing that you're focused on for your entire short life. That stuff's gonna get rusty and wear out and you're not gonna bring it with you. There's another thing that this made me think of this week that kind of freaked me out, (laughs) to be honest with you. because I'm, I'm the mission pastor here at South Valley, so I'm very involved in what we do overseas in the developing world. And um, God says he's going to provide for his children. He's a father who's going to provide for his children. And what if God's primary way of providing for his hungry children 
is to use his full children. What if God's primary way of providing for his hungry children is to use his full children who already have enough? Freaked me out, man. I'm not kidding. I was like, I've got enough. And I have friends. For me, I have less of an excuse. They're my friends. I know them personally. And what if God wants to provide for them through our excess? Again, it's not a guarantee of comfort for everyone. But for those of us who have enough, we need to stop and think about this stuff. Has the God money tricked you into thinking you need more and more and more for your own security while God is telling you, I am your security? Seek my kingdom, seek my righteousness. And the amazing thing to me about this, this verse is that uh, the seek his kingdom and seek his righteousness one is that it's a solution for both types of people. If you feel anxious, seek the kingdom. But, and if you live anxious but don't feel anxious, seek the kingdom. It's a solution to both problems. He's saying, don't be anxious, be salt. Remember, salt of the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world, I should say. Don't be anxious, be salt. Don't be anxious, be light. Trust God for the provision so that you don't have to seek or trust in the provision. I just have a, a few kind of practical application ideas coming out of this. They're all pretty general and they're just straight from the text, but I think this is what we need to try to do to apply this stuff, and it has to be done intentionally. The first one is submit your anxieties to God. And that's the same thing I talked about earlier. Don't just go, okay, I'm worried about paying rent, so I'll pray about rent. Do that, and then also force the deeper underlying anxiety and worry to confront the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has made you whole, that Jesus has made you truly human again. He has saved you. You are okay. Force your anxieties to confront that. And if, if it gives you temporary relief and they rear their head again later, do it again. It's like, it's like taking aspirin in the afternoon. Actively and intentionally seek his kingdom. I say actively and intentionally because it's really easy to talk generally about the idea of seeking his kingdom and seeking his righteousness, but that it will not happen if it's not intentional. Isaac talked a couple weeks ago, I'm using this metaphor in a different way, but he talked about how at the beginning of every year, a bunch of people get a gym, member, a gym membership and they go for like a week and never go again. If you want to go to the gym regularly, you need to say, okay, I'm changing the time my alarm goes off on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday so that I can go to the gym and work out for 45 minutes and then come home. This is sounding like a pretty good idea. I should do this probably this year. Um, it's like that with everything. Thing, your lifestyle does not change automatically just because you get a new idea. We all know we should be exercising, right? We're not doing it because we're not being intentional about it. It's the same thing for seeking his kingdom. We need to actually look through our priorities and make conscious decisions about what we're going to do differently to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. One super easy, super practical version of this that's happening right now in the church, we have uh, our Christmas compassion program that's actually starting this week. How many of you guys saw the Christmas tree in the lobby on your way in? We provide gifts for the families of incarcerated parents. That's one of the programs we do. And the other one we do is something called the Bridge Christmas Store, where we set up a, basically a store in our downtown campus and we invite low-income parents to come to the store and pick out gifts for their own kids and wrap them so that they can give their kids a present on Christmas morning. 
We do that stuff because those people matter, because their dignity matters. And if you have enough this Christmas, I really, really encourage you, put some of that money to work for God. Speaking of putting some of the money to work for God, use your blessings to bless others. You can work for your money or your money can work for the kingdom. It's a blessing. It's meant to stay a blessing for the world. It's not meant to be hoarded by us. And I know that's hard. I know that's way harder than it sounds. But there's simple things you can do, like uh, getting a present for a kid who's probably not going to get one this year otherwise. The other thing that's coming up, and this is a heavier one, that's another example of how we as a community can use our blessings to bless other people. We're starting a program called Foster the Bay. It's a coalition of churches that are gathering around this idea of foster care. And basically, it's more complicated than this, but the simple version is um, we as a church will raise up foster families, people who God has called to foster, and we will help them through the process of becoming foster families if they want to do that. And then we'll raise up what we call support friends so that each foster family has a group of support friends who are strategically and specifically involved in helping that family to raise that child by doing things like providing meals or giving rides to the other kids or things like that. But the idea is we know that we as a church have more blessings than we need, right? Than we need. And there are people who don't have enough. There are hungry children, not necessarily literally hungry, but but maybe hungry for a family. And this is a need that we can fill. So use your blessings to bless others and do it intentionally. It's how you show that false master money. It's how you show him who your actual boss is by giving all his stuff away. I'm telling you, it's scary. But it's incredibly powerful. And then finally, and this is my, my last point, remember who your father is. Jesus didn't just say God feeds the birds. He said your heavenly father feeds them. I'm going to pray for offering in a second. The worship team, you guys can come back up. Um, Your heavenly father, that phrase, the fact that he used those words to describe God should be the biggest lesson we get from today. There is a God in heaven the creator and sustainer of all things who is actively, presently involved in the world that we live in. And he calls himself your father. He feeds his birds. Don't you think he'll feed his children? So I want to encourage you in this time, we're going to sing um, a song that, that goes through the Lord's Prayer and that sings and reminds ourselves that our father has the things that we need. We don't have to spend all of our time and energy searching for them or seeking after them. We should be seeking after the Father because he has the things that we need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that that in this passage you reveal not just that we shouldn't be anxious, but why we shouldn't be anxious. It's not just that we shouldn't be anxious because being anxious is bad. It's because you have the needs that we have are taken care of by you, Lord. You have taken care of our greatest problems. Lord, I pray that, that even as we give this offering this morning, that we would give joyfully, knowing that these things that, you, that you've given us, these blessings of, of money on earth, they're going to wear out someday. They're not coming with us. They're not of ultimate value. You are of ultimate value. Your kingdom is of ultimate value. 
Your righteousness is of ultimate value. And one day, all the world will know that. So Father, I pray that we would be reminded of your goodness to us, that we can trust you, that you are trustworthy. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would be inspired by your spirit to to seek your kingdom and seek your righteousness and to know that when we do that, we can trust you to take care of everything else. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.